You're listening to the Planet Earth 2072 podcast from City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Louisiana Basin has now gotten more than 43 days of rain and it doesn't appear to be slowing down. Flooding from New Orleans and all the way to Hammond has brought a lot of businesses to a halt. Orange crops for the year are in danger of being decimated. The winter storm that froze much of the South over the past couple of months has taken a toll on whatever growers were hoping to salvage after another bad year. Congress continues to debate over the climate action bill, now ballooning to more than $3 trillion. The Wilson Republican Party continues to hold fast against the current bill. Meanwhile, President Katherine Emerson says that she is ready to do whatever is within her power to make this bill happen. Cities all across the U.S. are experiencing the highest temperatures ever. In Dallas, the thermostat popped up at 106. In Boise, it got as hot as 103. And down in Miami, it was a blistering 105 degrees with a heat index of over 114. Now proclaims many of the coastal regions of Vietnam, especially the Vung Tau area, a disaster zone. Hundreds of thousands of residents have been forced out of their homes as floodwaters remain also, sitting in Miami's place mayor now. Mayor is calling for the state and the federal governments to do more to help. The October King Tide is the worst ever as waters have reached more than three feet across Miami Beach and parts of Miami-Dade. The current seawall is not working in the pump system has been working non-stop for more than five years. struggle with mudslides as rough weather lingers over the city. They have now experienced more than three straight weeks of rain. People have left many parts of town because they're afraid of the mudslides taking them away and washing them into the ocean. Some are staying in their homes to protect whatever they own. Meanwhile, ports in Cuba remain closed as flooding in the streets of Havana worsens. Tens of thousands have... teaching kids in school about climate change and the current climate crisis? Well, it depends on which school district you're talking about. The greatest defense long-term against climate threats is to really educate uh, our students about local and global environments. Uh, At the middle school level, displaying the interactions uh, amongst the Earth's spheres and identifying the impact that human beings have on Earth and construct a scientific model that demonstrates how matter and energy constantly transfer between organisms. That's exactly what we do. And then at the senior high school level, a more complex conversation that brings into it the political actions that can be taken to actually address this issue at the state, national, and international levels. And uh, as a district, we believe that this is the appropriate environment for us to, in fact, have the longer lasting impact is to have a curriculum that stresses the importance of climate change through an action-driven approach. That was former Miami-Dade School Superintendent Alberto Carvalho, and he's now the superintendent in Los Angeles. There are national standards that have been developed in the areas of teaching climate science, but when it comes to national standards, the challenge is always going to be the same. Will each state accept the standards? And of course, you guessed right, no, not all states will. In South Florida, things may be a bit different than other counties and states, considering the threat that's facing the region. 
School students and teachers at Lake Worth High School, they're part of a pilot program involving a system called EcoRise by AT&T. It's an interactive map meshing climate change with socioeconomic vulnerability. As WPTV News Channel 5's Tori Dunnan reports, it's letting local students look at the next 50 years in the very neighborhoods where they live. That's a cool little story from Palm Beach County's WPTV. Now, just because there isn't enough time spent in the classroom talking about one of the greatest challenges facing our planet and our future, it doesn't mean there aren't people fighting to change that. One of the groups with the greatest reach in Miami and the region is the Clio Institute. Caroline Lewis founded the organization to help get more young people talking about, thinking about, and fighting against the oncoming climate crisis. I think what we're trying to do with the Clio Institute, what I do, as an educator, and I don't know if you know, but I am long associated with the definition of education from William Butler Yeats that says, education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. So what we do is we don't just try to fill pails with information, we try to light a fire within them. Caroline has inspired hundreds, if not thousands of young people to do more about the climate crisis. Now, later in this episode, we're going to meet one of those Gen Zers who's now part of the Clio, who's trying to spread the word. But first, I figured let's start the conversation with Clio Institute founder and environmentalist, Caroline Lewis. The young people, the Gen Xers, the Millennials, the Gen Zs, they are starting to like get really pissed off, excuse my language, but they're really starting to feel like, what the hell, people? You left us with this. So they're becoming informed and unapologetic in their demand for change. The baby boomers and the older generation are, are kind of like in two camps. Not my problem, I can't worry about it now, or what have we done? And I have got to be a part of some important legacy. I see the younger generation kind of having one voice about not in our backyard, not in our time. We're figuring this out and we're not going to accept it. And that's what I'm trying to feed right now. This is the interesting aspect, I think, about what the future looks like. And again, that's the whole idea of this project. What will Miami look like? And I'm wondering what, from you and what you've heard over the years from all the scientists you talk to, what does the science tell us about what's going to happen if we don't change our lives, get off fossil fuels, if we don't make the changes individually and as, as uh, an entire society, what can we expect? It's a dystopic picture if we don't turn the ship. And what I mean by a dystopic future is that the rate at which the climate will change, will continue to change, is nothing we can expect. You know, we have these scientists who talk about, they, they study the geologic record, they know how ice works, and they've looked at the past when we were leaving an ice age and going into a warming trend, how quickly the ice melted and the sea level rose in pulses. So while we're trying to say crazy things like three feet of sea level rise by the end of the century, some people think it could be 10 feet or 20 feet. So the uncertainty of what to expect is, is not well 
received by the public. And it sort of like gives them a reason to say, ah, forget it. You guys don't know what you're talking about. But the scientists are indeed puzzled about predicting with any certainty if it's going to be 30 feet or 10 feet. Because we don't really understand tipping points. It's not like you and I could get on a plane and go speak to the glaciers in Greenland and go, okay, we got it. Now stop melting, all right? Once they reach those tipping points, it goes. And then from ice melts and sea level rise, you have everything else spurring out of control. You have saltwater intrusion. You have loss of coastal property. Millions of people displaced. You have migration problems. You have heat and health vulnerability. You have the, the we call these feedback loops. These feedback loops of, of the tundra melting and releasing all of that stored carbon that has been there for eons into the atmosphere. So we're snowballing the effect. So what we picture, if we do nothing, is dystopia that really is not conducive to survival of humanity and life as we know it on the planet. Look, you're, you've spent so many years now trying to, to educate people. How do you get that across, though? Because, you know, the other thing that I was thinking about was one of my favorite conversations uh, as a broadcaster was a few years ago when I was speaking to uh, a coalition of former military leaders who are now, you know, trying to convince the Pentagon and Congress that you should treat climate change like you would treat ISIS. It's an enemy and it's going, it's, it's dangerous, but it's challenging because unlike ISIS, you could put a face on it and you know the threat. Climate change, you can't put a face on it. And as you said, scientists will tell you there's this could happen or this could happen or this could happen. We don't know yet, but there's a tipping point. How do you educate people on that? How do you get them to understand that threat? Well, I, you know, that's the million-dollar question. So I think what we're trying to do with the Clio Institute, what I do as an educator, and I don't know if you know, but I am long associated with the definition of education from William Butler Yeats that says, education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. So what we do is we don't just try to fill pails with information. We try to light a fire within them so that they see this climate literacy and this climate action as a journey that they've got to be a part of and that they got to figure out what their next step is. So doing that, empowering them, letting them know they have tremendous power to influence change just within their circles of influence and to give them opportunities. We give them advocacy opportunities to rally cities and counties to declare climate emergencies. We give them opportunities to say, this bill in Congress is not looking for the future of the young people. We want change. So what we really want to do is we want to say to everybody, there are two scales, your climate knowledge and your climate action. And what is your number from one to 10 on climate knowledge? How much do you know? One, I know nothing. 10, I'm a published climate scientist. I'm about a 6.5 because I know how much I don't know. Mm. On the climate action scale, where are you? One is, I don't talk to anybody. I'm an island. Leave me alone. And 10 is, I don't want to shut up about it. When my friends see me coming, they're like this. You know, where are you? I'm a 12. So really kind of making it funny but inclusive so that people see themselves as part of change and not getting bogged down on just their little role about changing light bulbs. All of that is needed. 
eating less meat, very much needed. Educating people, essential. But about the big moves, getting businesses and government to own their role in this, to put a price on carbon, to do the right thing. That's where you can get a big movement going. You know, but you point something out that's interesting. And I know you've heard this. You've heard people say, I'm I'm one little person. What? Yeah. That's a big deal. It doesn't matter what I do. Okay. On the ground level, that one individual person, you know, what are some things that you would tell them to, to you know, circumvent that idea, that type of thinking? What would you tell them? Look, here's some things you could do, and that would make a big difference. What would they be? Well, I think you need to tell them stories. So with young people, I tell this story all the time. The city of Miami, with Mayor Francis Suarez currently, was trying to do a lot on climate or talking about it. And the kids, about a handful of them, a dozen, were picketing every Friday outside the, the city hall, the city of Miami city hall. And Francis pulled up one day, Mayor Suarez, and came out to speak to the kids, which I thought was lovely. And they were going, we want you to declare a climate emergency. And he goes, no, no, I will act like it's an emergency, but I will not declare an emergency. And I remember JP, John Paul, um, a, a young Gen Cleo member who works with a lot of uh, climate youth groups. He came out of that little circle with Francis and he goes, man, they're not listening to us. And I said, get back in there. This is the first time anybody ever asked him that. Keep talking. And you know, like two months later, the kids were bombarding him on social media and he was at the microphone declaring a climate emergency. So I use stories like that to explain that their power is hard for them to predict, but their voice and the need for them to share their voice is urgent. And especially with young people, oh my goodness, elected officials, lawyers, bankers, they listen to the young people. I remember about seven years ago when we were advocating for Miami-Dade County to have an office of resilience, get Jim Murley a job. And we had seven or eight young people, high schoolers, speaking at the county hearing, the budget hearing. And I was getting texts from the dais commissioner saying, Caroline, who are these young people? They're so impressive. And these are the stories I tell to let people understand their power to influence and effect change. And so that they figure out what they want. Others, some people want to write. Others want to act. Others want to march. Others want to organize. So we try to not cookie cutter everybody's next step, but sort of get them riled up and excited. And we have a Gen Clio movement that meets monthly, and we, we're constantly recruiting and bringing them in and then putting them out on shows like yours and other people who are interested in speaking to the Miami youth voice, because Miami is getting a lot of attention um, internationally of the climate crisis because we're ground zero. Yeah. And a lot of people want to hear the youth voices. So we're trying to feed that pipeline. You're listening to the Planet Earth 2072 podcast, a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Luis Hernandez. We're talking with environment advocate and founder of the Clio Institute, Caroline Lewis. And you can learn more about her and her work. It's on our website, 
planetearth2072.com. By the way, share your thoughts about this podcast on our website or on Facebook under Planet Earth 2072. Now, what about her thoughts on where we are in our climate knowledge and our climate action? What do you think about yourself when she said that? Some of us may know a lot about climate issues, though I'm very careful about what I say since I'm not a scientist and I still have a lot to learn. What about climate action? Are you taking any action on the issue? Do you try to talk about it with others or do you try to do anything about it? Or are you just keeping it to yourself? Now, there's no wrong answer here, but I would like to hear your thoughts on that. When it comes to your climate knowledge and your climate action, where are you? Now, by the way, there's a book that goes with this podcast I just wanted to mention. It's called Planet Earth 2072. It's a science fiction novel. It's a collection of stories which take place in Miami and Las Vegas in the early fall of 2072. Now, you could read a couple of those stories for free right now on the website, or if you're on Wattpad, just look up Radio Host. By the way, that's a great website to find new and upcoming writers. So check it out. Let me know. Let's get back to our conversation with Caroline Lewis, founder of the Clio Institute, and let's learn more about what she thinks is in store for the city of Miami in the coming years. and I've had this, this conversation with people and I'm bouncing back and forth on, on how I feel about it. Do you think that it's necessary to convince deniers in the science or is it just about, look, what if we got people to just live what I call a green life? Like maybe I don't convince my neighbor <clears throat> that, you know, climate change is real. The climate crisis is a real problem. But maybe I can convince them, hey, you know what? You want solar panels because these are the greatest thing in the world and it'll change your life. Maybe if I can convince him to do that, great. Now he's doing something. At least he's playing a role. He may not be thinking it. I don't know. I almost think of it this way, Caroline. It's almost like, how do you get, how do you get your kids to eat their vegetables? Well, sometimes you just have to find the most creative way. Don't tell them it's healthy for them, but find a way to get them to eat their vegetables. But I don't know. What do you think about that idea? Do we need to try to convince deniers or just you know, get people to live a certain way? That's a great question. You know, are you familiar with the Six America study? No. Okay, so Yale University and George Mason have been studying the attitudes of Americans and people around the world towards climate change. And they broke us up into six Americas mm. where they say we fall into categories from outright denial or disengagement or just slight concern to crazy alarmed. So we're in one of six Americas. And if you look at the percentage of us when they do the surveys, the, the two deniers and, and disengage that group has been consistently between 18 and 22%, right? The rest of us, between about 80% of us, know something is going on, care about it, or are outright alarmed. So there's plenty of work to do with that 80%. So going after the deniers doesn't really make sense, but ostracizing them is unhealthy. So bringing them along. And I'll tell you what works 
for your neighbor and people like that is the economic argument because solar panels will save them money in the yeah, long run right yeah. and they'll end up making money doing the right thing or saving money doing the right thing eating less meat it's good for the planet but it's good for your health as well i haven't given up meat but i'm eating less of it and i feel nutritionally and globally i'm making an impact so that's how i would approach it but i think that there's there's a big concern i have so you brought it up earlier the same Yale University just did a study that says at least 78% of us care about climate and know that something is going on. But only 40% think it's going to impact them. And only 30% are talking about it. So those are the numbers I want to change. I want to make people understand what you asked me earlier. Is it impacting us right now? And how so? And it's not just coastal communities. People who are inland and on high ground. Right. Heat affects all of us. Health concerns affect all of us. Migration, displacement. Where do, you, where do they think we're going? We're going where you are. If you feel safe, we're coming. So the whole idea. <laughs> that you, <laughs> you get it, right? Oh, if you enjoy that peace and quiet, you're about to have a lot of new neighbors you may not want. I wanted to ask you about, and as we finish up here, talking about this younger generation, because this is the focus of the podcast, you get to work with these young people, this Gen Z. And I've been so impressed with the people I've talked to. I think about at their age, what was I doing? And and yeah. I, <laughs> I think at their age, I was just thinking about, you know, studying for my test and chasing girls and playing video games. They are so involved. They are so passionate but I also know they're stressed and afraid of the future. What do you see in this generation? What's been your experience with them and, and the role that they're playing? This younger generation, this Gen Z and above, I think that they are afraid. I think that there is a, a climate grief, thanks to Greta in large part, but not only to Greta. There are a lot of young people suing the state, suing the country and really trying to to mobilize action. And I think that climate grief begs for hope. They want hope. And the only thing that seems to give them hope is action. So if we can give them platforms to share their voices, to appeal to elected officials and businesses, to even run for office themselves, those steps are what keeps their hope alive and the momentum going. Because there are days when I wake up, Louise, as you could well imagine, where I don't have to stay in my bed and rock myself to sleep or get up and fight again. And you've got to get up. You've got to take that next step. The, if you're following the climate science, every day it's more disturbing. They're talking about methane now and how much methane leaks are amplifying this planet cooking gases that we keep adding to the atmosphere. And so we have to find ways of combating the disinformation campaign that natural gas is clean. Natural gas is methane. And yes, if you burn coal and you burn natural gas, natural gas is cleaner. But the extraction of natural gas versus coal and the use of it makes natural gas 10 to 20 times dirtier than coal. So the lies that we're living to try to keep 
some of the economy going in oil, coal, and gas is infuriating. And I think the young people see that as a target. So that they're pushing the government. Okay, we want to stop coal plants. We want to stop natural gas. But we've got to retrain the population. We don't want people without jobs. So having young people that are connecting the dots and making sure that the government is listening, and thankfully now we have an administration that is listening, makes these young people feel hopeful that they could put a dent in things, that they could turn the ship. Because, you know, people say we're all on the same boat, but it's not really true. We're all in the same storm of the climate crisis. But some of us are on yachts, and some of us are on <laughs> motorboats, some of us are on dinghies and canoes, and some of us are just floating in the water. And so the idea that climate justice, how's that for the next topic I want you to take on, Louise? Climate justice, the unfairness with which climate impacts are affecting the most vulnerable, those who are least responsible for the problem are feeling it the most. Those without the yacht and the boat and the canoe, those are just floating in water. That wakes some people up that you cannot serve the public and pretend that these bottom 68% of society doesn't matter. So gives them hope. They're in a fight. And we want them to know that their fight matters. So that's how we do it. That is the I, the most interesting way I've ever heard it. We're all in the same storm, not in the same boat. That's really beautiful. Um, let me finish with this. I know that we, you and me, we're not going to be around to see the year 2072. But that generation will. But imagine if you could see it. With what we know, you know, just off the top of your head, what do you think Miami and South Florida is going to look like? What world are we giving them, leaving them? So thank you for asking that. 2072, I will definitely not be around. But what I imagine is Miami is compromised. There's a small population still living here on the high ground, on the ridges. I think the smell is repulsive. I don't know why, but you know, when we had the fish kills in Biscayne Bay, I live on an apartment overlooking Biscayne Bay. And one morning when I went out on the balcony, I could smell the dead fish. And all mm. I could think about Louise is, I'm smelling the future. Mm. And, and so when you ask me what do I picture in 2072, it's very sad. Because I don't think the Miami that you and I know and love and experience is going to exist. I think it's going to be severely compromised. I think a lot of it will be abandoned because the people can no longer live or afford to live here. Um, I, think, I think we're in for a rough time. I, you know, I see the county and the city studying these adaptation action areas like Little River and Arch Creek Basin and trying to see, can we move properties that are on the lowest level? Can we raise the homes in this area? They're trying to envision 2072 with a lot of adaptation, raising roads and elevating it. So if we had a lot of money to invest in that, then we could be buying time. However, the heat and the bay and the death and the lack of oxygen in the water those are things that we can't adapt to with any kind of success. So it's, it's not a pretty picture for me, but if I want to remain optimistic, then I will say Miami needs to adapt as much as possible so we can stay here safely as long as possible. <laughs>
Por eso estoy bien, bien acá como Axe Para los airbags Esto es para ti, no hay Si no eres de aquí, no te quieren nada Pero cuando entono al otro that was our conversation with Caroline Lewis, founder of the environmental advocacy nonprofit, the Clio Institute. You can learn more about them and their work. It's on our website at planeteearth2072.com. It's also on our Facebook page under the same name. So what do you think about what Caroline said about the future of Miami? By the way, share your thoughts on our website or on Facebook. I'd love to hear your thoughts about what you think is in store for your hometown. What's going to happen in the coming decades as temperatures rise and oceans rise? Now, we're going to join another conversation here in just a moment with a Gen Zer. But before we do that, I wanted to remind you about another podcast that we produce through City of Dreams Media Incorporated. It's called The Reporter Studio. What do you know about the news media? Have you ever met a journalist? Welcome to the Reporter Studio. The first one was like the Superman phase, where it's like, I can do anything and I'll never be harmed. And then the second one was, I can do most things, maybe I'll be harmed. And then the third one was, something will happen to me. If Audience anger. Um, people are like, oh, these are fact checkers are just, you know, they're not really umpires. They're the liberal media. They're trying to put their thumb on the scales. But worse than that, like you'd be kind of horrified by the profanity and some of the. That's if you go to Mars, drop off, and then immediately come back. Like we're talking about something eight, nine, 10, 12 years you're going to that planet. And while you're there, you're not on the surface of the planet. You're, you're stuck in your spacecraft or stuck underground because it's. And nobody's patsy. And one thing I learned after the Iraq war is that you just cannot allow. Um, someone else to control. Today, it's a bit rough being a journalist, and sometimes I would agree, we deserve the criticism. But many of us are just ordinary people trying to do a job the best we can. Learn more about the reality of the lives of journalists at The Reporter Studio. Go to thereporterstudio.com and find the podcast on your podcast app. Learn more about the podcast at thereporterstudio.com. Now, let's turn to one of the young people who learned a lot from Caroline at the Clio, Gabriela Rodriguez. She's a program coordinator at the Clio and currently earning her graduate degree at Yale. Let's go to our conversation with her about her fight to protect Do you remember what was the moment when the issue of climate change like became part of your life? Was it something you saw, someone you spoke to? When, when did it happen? It was, I definitely had an aha moment. Um, and I think... For me, it was in a classroom at FIU during my freshman or sophomore year of college. And so I, I studied environmental studies. And so I took a lot of classes about the environment and science and human interactions and whatnot. 
Um, but climate change was something that was always kind of like touched upon at the end of my classes. I didn't take like an actual course yet. And so I'm sitting in this classroom, one of my environmental uh, classes, and in the last few minutes of a lecture, my professor brings up sea level rise and he puts on the board a map of Miami-Dade County and it looks completely normal. But on this board, he hits the next slide and it shows that same map with two feet of sea level rise. So I start to see like pockets of blue starting to cover the, the land slowly and slowly. And then the next slide has four feet of sea level rise, more blue, then six feet, more blue, eight feet, more blue, you know, 10 feet, more blue, 12 feet. And at that point, my city was underwater and my class ran out of time. And when I saw climate change uh, depicted to me like that, in that fashion, very like, this is what's happening over time. These are the projections. Um, and under a time pressure as well in that classroom, I was struck with so much anxiety sitting, sitting in my chair. Um, I got up out of that room. I felt like the water was like filling my lungs, right? It was so, it was so frightening. Um, but when I walked out of that classroom and I started driving back home from FIU, I, I realized that I needed to turn that anxiety into action and I shouldn't you know, let that doom and gloom of climate change keep me from doing nothing. And in that moment, I realized that climate was the issue I wanted to work on as an environmental student and as a professional in this field. And so from there on out, I ended up joining the climate movement and working with a local organization. But yeah, that was definitely my moment. So interesting you said that. And that's been one of the things that I've been asking a lot of the guests is that, and I, I just, this is just from conversations I have with young people, but also stuff that I've read that your generation is is feeling that anxiety. It's really stressed about the future. And I'm, I'm wondering, is that is that the case? Is your generation feeling really stressed about what's coming? 100%. I mean, when I, the story that I just told you was just one of the millions of examples and feelings and moments that I felt throughout my youth. Um, and so that can be felt across my entire generation, Generation Z. And it's, it's this existential anxiety. You put it, you put it well. It's like, what is going to happen to the places that we love, our hometowns, the people that we love? Will we be able to raise our children the same way our parents did? Will we have the same access to the same job opportunities and, and housing opportunities and healthcare as our parents did? Or will we be bombarded by natural disasters and just different impending crises, right, as we don't take action on this issue? So definitely, there is a, a common existential anxiety felt across this generation right now about this issue. Mm. I want to come back to, to when you were in school. Uh, my understanding, you did, you did a study abroad in Costa Rica, right? Yeah, I did. Tell me what was that like and, and what did it show you or teach you about, you know, this issue? How much more did it expand your understanding of it and, and what had to be done? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so I went to Costa Rica with FIU's Honors College and we specifically focused on ecotourism and just how the country um, incorporates environmental topics and environmental education into their tourism and education and different um, community efforts. But when I was there, 
one of the biggest takeaways I had was seeing the stuff that I was learning about in my textbooks actually in person and not so much the impacts um, of like different environmental issues or climate change, but the solutions, right? And that was so, so refreshing for me to see as a, a student who was born and raised in the United States because, you know, the, the truth is, is that we are so behind. Um, and so going to Costa Rica and seeing all these solutions in renewable energy and these jobs that were created and just these education efforts that they have was so um, uplifting. And it made me feel like, yeah, let's do this. We can totally do the same thing in our country. Why not? Yeah. Tell me about like, what was the, the one thing that jumped out at you, whether it was a moment or something you saw there that it was just really unexpected that, you know, maybe, maybe your favorite memory of that experience. Yeah, I mean, I have so many because it was just so fun also at the same time. Um, anybody who's gone to Costa Rica knows that it's just like so fun to go there. Um, but I, I think like staying on topic with this conversation, I had a really big um, kind of emotional moment, honestly, when I saw uh, these mountains covered in windmills. And I know we have windmills in the United States, but, you know, also being from Miami, Florida and just not really seeing renewable energy that often, that was the first time I ever saw windmills. And it was just covering the mountaintops and it was in the distance behind this lake with these like cows and this, it was so beautiful. Um, And it was just, it was so wonderful again to see like the actual future that I'm working for and that people my age are working for every day in front of my eyes, right? Like in, in this situation, it wasn't the future, it was the present and it was wonderful and it was awesome. That, yeah, no, and I remember the first, I think I'm trying to remember the first time I saw a windmill farm, it was in Texas. I think mm-hmm. it's the first time uh, many years ago. Um, there was another moment in your life I wanted to ask about. You were, uh, I think it was when you were in Boston and it was about the climate emergency training. What is yeah. that? Tell me what that's all about. Yeah. So um, when I started getting involved with the climate movement through an organization called the Clio Institute, which is Miami based, um, I also got involved with their youth advocacy group. And so I went with three other students who are all local organizers here as well. I'm just going to shout them out because they're amazing. It's John Paul Mejia, Nicole Gazzo, and Sammy Gazda. They are literally shaking things up in Miami for climate action. Um, The four of us went to Boston uh, to participate in a climate emergency declaration training. So basically what we did there was we spent two days learning about what climate emergency declarations are, what they do for a community, um, and how to bring one to your own community. And it was such perfect timing because literally the night before we got to Boston, um, if I remember correctly, the city of Miami Beach declared climate emergency through their piece of legislation. And then when we came back from Boston, we had the city of Miami declare um, a climate emergency declaration. So it was a wonderful trip. Um, it was an incredible training and it allowed it allowed us to bring back some resources to Miami that helped us propel the first steps of climate legislation under these cities, these governments. You know, you've had the opportunity now because of the work that you've done uh, with Clio, especially uh, to deal with politicians. And I wondered, you know, for you and I always I'm always curious what uh, what people from your generation think about dealing with politicians and how they may not be thinking about 50 years down the road. They may just be thinking about the next election. They are dealing with a lot of different issues and keeping people happy. And maybe it's not, you know, the issue is not that high on their list, but I don't know what, for you, what's been your experience? 
Totally. Um, you know, before I say anything, I do have to like preface that I have had experience interacting with politicians and elected officials, but definitely not as much as um, some other people my age working in this movement, because a lot of my work has been surrounded around um, climate education. Regardless, um, I've definitely had conversations and I've had meetings. Um, I've met with Mayor Olivia Cava. I've met Mayor Suarez. And you know, my experiences with all of them haven't been bad or nasty or, um, you know, like these are terrible, terrible people. Um, they've all been really receptive and, and really great. But I think what's important for any everybody to recognize, especially as somebody that lives um, in Miami-Dade County and your constituent of your, your district, your, your local government, is to remember that these people work for you. And I think when I learned that, through my work in uh, the climate movement, when I learned that elected officials worked for me, I had absolutely no fear or nervousness really, or like hesitancy about interacting with them or meeting with them or talking to them. Because to me, it was like, I'm meeting with this person because their job, right? Like the money that we pay um, is to represent my voice and my needs and my concerns. And so, um, you know, people can say, obviously, whatever they want about politicians. I think that would end up just diving into a totally different <laughs> conversation. But I I think that when you realize that, like what their position actually is, and it's for you, um, it becomes so easy to have that confidence uh, to become civically engaged and meet with them. Hmm. Uh, no, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, I think they just treat me differently since I'm, I'm a reporter. So <laughs> <laughs> they act very differently when I show up. There's no question about that. Makes sense. Thanks again for listening to the Planet Earth 2072 podcast a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. You can follow us on most podcast platforms, and if you're a listener, please subscribe. And if you like the content, I would appreciate it if you take a moment, just rate and review, and then tell somebody about it. We're talking with Yale graduate student and program coordinator for the Clio Institute, Gabriela Rodriguez. Learn more about her on our website, planetearth2072.com, or go to Facebook and look us up under the same name. And by the way, what do you think about what she said about the U.S. being behind? Now, I want to clarify that in some ways the U.S. is behind, and in other ways we're actually doing a pretty good job. But it's not to say there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Find out more again on the website, but let's get back to our conversation with graduate student and environment activist Gabriela Rodriguez. Um, the, the work that you've been doing with Clio, as you said, you focus mostly on education. Um, my understanding right is you, you spend time going to schools, right? Yeah. So I, as a program coordinator at Clio, which is my professional job within this movement, 
is I help bring climate change education to schools. And that's obviously a really vague statement. Um, so what I specifically do to do that is I manage a program called uh, Climate Resilient Schools. More so I help develop and help manage it. There's an incredible team at Clio where we all work on this together. Um, and uh, basically what we do is we partner with high schools around the county and we kind of form like these mini climate change clubs. And uh, it's called, the clubs are called CLIP climate leadership information program and the kids in these clubs we train them into climate speakers so we train I help train students on how to uh, teach about climate change how to communicate the science the impacts and the solutions to the crisis and then I help the students give these presentations about climate change to their peers so we foster this peer-to-peer -peer education on campuses in Miami-Dade County and it's really really wonderful because there is a lack of conversation around climate change in our in our county and in our school system. So the students in our program are taking that issue in their own hands and they're learning about the issue and they're talking about it. They're, they're driving initiatives on campus about it from composting to fast fashion to all these different things. Um, and yeah, it's been incredibly wonderful to see the climate literacy and the understanding of this issue um, pick up in our students in the past few years. Do you know what they do? They teach because you like, like you told me it was at FIU that you started to hear about climate change, teachers talking about it. And then all of a sudden that world opens up to you. But in high schools, you know, in middle schools, are they talking about climate change? Is that part of the curriculum besides what you guys are doing? Yeah. So it's definitely part of the curriculum, but that definitely doesn't mean that it's robust enough. Right. Um, there are science standards under the, the state of Florida, obviously, where teachers and administrators have to follow them and talk about climate change to some capacity, to some degree, to reach those standards. But the truth is, is that um, it's not being talked about enough. And when it is talked about, oftentimes, it's not being taught enough in depth. It's like, all you learn is CO2 is bad. And the planet's getting warm. Okay, but how does it lead to these impacts? And what are the solutions to that? And how can students find job opportunities and career opportunities to help with this issue, right? So it's being taught. And I definitely got a taste of it in my high school and my and my middle school. Um, but it needs to be taught so much better because the truth is that it is going to impact the life of every young person right now. Um, so it's something that you know, us at the Clio Institute, we're working hard to bring it through our programs, but we're also working hard to make systemic change so that one day we don't have to do this work and teachers have the resources and tools they need to teach about climate change um, well in their classrooms across subjects and grade levels. So you're heading off to Yale. What 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 do you see as, uh, you know, your your life after school? What, what you know, what do you envision? Your, your What are your goals? What do you want to do? Yeah, I I have some goals, um, but the main goal and the entire reason I'm pursuing graduate school is because um, I know that Miami has a lack of a climate justice focus, right? So Miami has a really strong climate community. And, you know, we're, we're, people are talking about this now. It's not something that people are debating the existence of anymore. But something that always um, kind of unsettled me while working in the climate movement here for the past few years is a lack of a focus on social justice. And so when I started learning about climate justice, which is the intersection of climate change and social issues and racism and um, classism and things like that, 
I, I realized that Miami could be a poster child for climate injustice because not only do we have the climate crisis, but we have a widening wealth gap. We have an affordable housing crisis. We have um, systemic racism. We have so many issues here that will be compounded and perpetuated under um, a warming planet. And so my goal is to go to grad school, get some knowledge and skills, learn a bit, little bit more about that. And I um, intend on coming back to Miami to specifically help on centering social justice in our solutions to climate change here. And, you know, ensuring, ensuring an equitable, just and sustainable Miami in the future, not just one where people survive the next hurricane or people survive extreme heat, but where people People like really thrive and and we lift up our vulnerable communities as we invest in clean energy and good paying jobs. You know, it's so interesting you say that I, I you know, I was thinking about, um, I mean, doing this podcast and the other part of it, obviously, as I mentioned, is that I'm writing this book, but that book is science fiction. And, you know, part of it takes place in, in Miami 50 years from now. And just thinking about what Miami is going to look like in 50 years. And I was just thinking about that. And the social justice part is fascinating. I actually do have a story within the book, because they're all just short stories, where, yeah, I think, sadly, I don't know if it'll be solved by then, but, you know, we're, we we will shove out the poor, we'll shove out, you know, many minority groups to, you know, not so pleasant places to live while the higher ground is taken by the money. And so, you know, I hope I'm wrong. It's just science fiction. I hope I'm wrong. I hope it's fixed by them. But I don't know. Then again, you know, being a little older, I, I think that uh, sometimes I could be a little bit more uh, pessimistic. <laughs> you know, it just it, I don't always I don't have that youthful optimism that I used to have. But hopefully I'm wrong. But saying that, I wanted to ask you this question. When you think about the future, um, you know, we think about 50 years from now. I, I mean, you, you will see that day. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about what you think Miami's going to look like in 50 years. If you, whether you stay here or you came back to visit, I want you to picture it and tell me what you see. Yeah. Um, oof, that's such a heavy question. But I'll start by saying that I am young, so I have that youthful optimism. But that you, that optimism I have, I definitely don't um, credit it to the fact that I'm I'm young, right? I I've learned that um, optimism in this work is actually like a survival tool, and it's extremely necessary because this work is really emotionally and mentally um, draining. And so I like to use optimism as a tool to keep myself going and and keep the people around me you know, wanting to join this movement and help with what we should be talking about and doing. And so to answer your question, I, my vision of Miami is very hopeful, really. And it's very optimistic because I don't see the point envisioning it in any other way. Because if we paint a nice picture and we paint this incredible future, people will want it. And people will want to join the movement and help reach it. Um, and I, and not only that, but it's also not fairy tale. It's totally possible. And I think a lot of the times what we regard as radical is really not that radical. It's just that people have been limited and and don't want to let their imagination run wild, right? And so, because of that. Um, the vision that I have of Miami is an, a Miami that's equitable and just and sustainable. You know, a, a Miami where we have a working democracy where everybody's voice is, is heard and everybody participates as they should. 
um, a Miami that runs on 100% renewable energy, that's needless to say, you know, no more burning of fossil fuels um, and a Miami that ensures clean water and clean air and, and good health and a livable future basically to all of its residents. Um, I think that this is something that is actually possible because there are people on the grounds right now um, who are working to achieve this future Miami. Um, you know, it's, it's not to say that there won't be impacts of climate change, right? The science tells us that we will definitely feel something <laughs> in the next few decades. Um, we're going to have issues with sea level rise. We're going to have issues with saltwater intrusion. But is it necessarily going to be the doom and gloom that I saw right in my classroom with 12 feet of sea level rise and a hurricane seven or something uh, category storm? Maybe not, right? If we can, you know, pull together and, and, uh, put science at the forefront, you know, use this as an opportunity to to create good paying jobs and renewable energy and infrastructure, we can avoid those impacts. And Miami will look a little bit different. I couldn't tell you exactly what the projections would show, but I, I do know that Miami will be better and it'll be representative and it'll be dignified and it'll be a place um, where we, we thrive. Um, let me just end it by asking you, uh, you know, if anything, you know, you're talking to older generations and your generation, what do you want to tell them? I'll say for older generations, uh, it's become obvious that younger people, young people right now are, are seeing the world through a different lens um, for various different reasons. You can say it's social media, that we're more connected as a generation. We have access to information like never before. Um, we're just so much more attuned to these issues. But that isn't to say that you aren't welcome to the movement. Um, and I think that's something that uh, a lot of us want to make known to people of all ages, that it might be youth dominated. Um, but just because it's something that feels like it impacts young people doesn't mean it only impacts us. And I think that um, older generations, by all means, please come help us out because all we need really, according to, I forgot the name of the rule, the, the social justice, this social movement rule, all we really need is 3.5% of the United States engaged. Um, and if we can get 3.5% of the population engaged in, in, this, in this issue, we can create um, real political and social change on climate change. So, I mean, that's what I would say to everybody. There's reason to be hopeful about this issue. All you have to do is start learning more and get up and find your role in the movement. There's a place for you for sure, no matter what your background is. That was Gabriela Rodriguez, graduate student at Yale and program coordinator at the Clio Institute. Find a link to her work in the description of the podcast or on the website planetearth2072.com. And by the way, if the temperature keeps rising and the oceans keep rising, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on the future of your hometown. Find us on the website or on Facebook, post your thoughts. I really would love to hear from you. I want to tell you about the book that goes with this podcast. I've been mentioning it. It's a science fiction novel. It's called Planet Earth 2072. And the first couple of stories are already available for free. You can find them on the website, or if, by the way, you're on Wattpad, just look me up under Radio Host. The book is a collection of short stories that take place in Miami and Las Vegas in the year 2072. Coming up next time, 
on the Planet Earth 2072 podcast. So seven of my friends and I, all youth from around the state of Florida, filed this lawsuit back in 2018, April of 2018. And what the lawsuit says is that we are suing the state of Florida, the government of Florida, um, the governor, the commissioner of agriculture, and essentially the governor's entire cabinet for not upholding legal duties that are outlined in the Florida Constitution and something called the Public Trust Doctrine, which both say that our government has the legal duty to protect our public trust resources. Delaney Reynolds has been called South Florida's version of Greta Thunberg. She's been at it a lot longer though. She wrote her first book when she was a young teenager. She started a nonprofit and she's suing the state of Florida she just finished college, she's in graduate school, and we're going to talk with her about what she's doing to protect the planet. Thanks again for listening to Planet Earth 2072. You can follow more about our guests and stories and articles that were used in the research for this particular episode at planetearth2072.com. Thanks again for listening.